Of all the legendary creatures that stalk the shadows, one stands head and shoulders above the rest. From the forests of the Poconos to the American Northwest and even Alaska, these unexplained sightings have been reported for centuries, and sometimes there seems to be more than what meets the eye. Today, we're sharing stories of Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to Shadowland, everybody. Welcome. This is a podcast that shines a spotlight on stories of the supernatural, mysterious, eerie, and unexplained. Stuff like black holes. Machine elves. Miracles. Wild man. Synchronicity. Close encounters of the fifth kind. What's that? Guardian angels. Shapeshifters. UFO hotspots. Human pig hybrids. Energy vortexes. Magic. Hauntings at sea. Road trolls. Mothman. Ancient aliens. Zombies. Gates to hell. Modern dinosaurs. Giants. All that stuff. All that stuff and more. Lots more. And I'm Seth Jablon. I'm Christina Callery. And today... Today, we're celebrating our one-year anniversary. Yay, yay. With a and big one, literally. The big one, the Bigfoot. The Bigfoot. Yes. So excited. I'm so super excited about this one. I feel yeah, like it's like too. such a long time coming, you know? Right. I feel like like I remember Bigfoot and all the time life books, right? Like, you know, we, we've talked about that. Yeah. Or, the Whatever they were called. Um. And, you know, definitely, like, helped spark my interest in all this type of, like, mysterious Shadowland stuff. But I never really, like, kept up with it. Like, I I think you said once to me that it was, like, there was something kind of mundane about it. Some sort of, you know, like, it was just, like, an animal that we hadn't discovered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also, I mean, yeah. I've, I've kind of been of two minds about it. I mean, on yeah. the one hand, I mean, I, I really... I personally love all of the more supernatural kind of spooky, ghosty, yeah, um, that kind of thing. But uh, reading this, doing the research and reading these stories, it's kind of like renewed that feeling that you're talking about of being yeah, a little same, kid. Same. I remember like seeing that famous footage, you know, where it's yeah. kind of walking through the forest and turns and yep. just like lying in bed at night and wondering about it. What is it and what does it mean? Yeah, and, what's out there? Yeah, and I feel like there's, and, I, and I'm sure we will get into it, there's a there's a depth to the discussion that I think is, is um, I don't know, something that I found anew. Um, okay, so uh, so uh, do you mind? I know I went first last time. Do you, do you mind if I go first? I did like a little introduction. Oh, sure, yeah, go for it. Okay, okay, cool, cool. Okay, you ready? I'm totally ready. Let's hear it. Okay. They go by many names, depending on the region and according to some by species. Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Yeti, Abominable Snowman, Smallfoot, Skunk Ape, Wild Man, and the Unseen Tribes. Some say they're just a legend, others an undiscovered primate. Some believe they have a spiritual nature replete with special powers like uh, telepathy and even are associated with other paranormal activity like UFOs, ball lightning, and the like. Um, they've been caught on film, recorded hollering in the night, 
measured in footprints, and moreover recounted in vivid detail by those who have had the thrill or terror of seeing them with their own eyes. Whatever they are, there is something out there. And the question really is, what? Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you touched on it in the, in the sort of teaser, but they've said to, you know, exist in the cold reaches of the Himalayas, um, but they're best known for inhabiting the shadows of the North Ameri- the expansive North American forests, most particularly the Pacific Northwest, um, but also the lush mountains of the northern, uh, su- sorry, southern United States. And their sightings and stories actually um, go back, uh, date back to early America. Um, and certainly they were a part of Native American folklore. Um, but uh, some accounts of the, the first encounter. Yes. Yep. Or wild man um, or hairy man is another another one. Um, but yeah, some of the first accounts of the first encounters in the New World happened as early as the 1800s. Um, as the more like sort of rural parts of America started to be settled, right? So as soon as we're out in those forests, they start having these encounters. Um, so I got a few stories. I think I think you have a couple too or or one, but um, I just so, have one big one. Oh, you just have it's one like big one? It's like almost Mel's hole. Oh, really? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> All right, cool. I kind of have like a sampling because I, like there's a couple of things I kind of wanted to touch on. Um, so hopefully they'll, they'll all complement each other. Um, but yeah, the, the first ones I have are um, uh, early American Bigfoot stories. So the, the, um, here's a story dating back to 1829. And it was, um, it was actually covered in a, um, a newspaper at the time. Um, and it was the Bigfoot attack in the Okefenokee Swamp uh, in Georgia. Um, for, so the Okefenokee um, Swamp is a wetland in southern Georgia near the border of Florida. Um, and then at that time, some of the first settlers were um, pushing their way through that swamp, right? So it was winter of 1828 to 1829, and the weather that year had been extremely dry. So um, two of the men that lived on the edge of the swamp decided to make a full exploration of it, right? So it being sort of dry, they could like move around uh, more easily and, you know, get places they couldn't necessarily get normally, so, um, so the two men went and they took a boy with, along with them. I'm not sure whose boy it was. It doesn't really say. I feel, just feel like because it, was it like, sounds super safe and good yeah. for children. That <laughs> yeah. kind of trip. I just feel like at that time there were like random boys just sitting around waiting to go on adventures. <laughs> yeah, like, so anyway, so off they go into the um, swamp and over two weeks uh, penetrate deep into the heart of the swamp. Um, there they discover some startling footprints, which were gigantic. Right. So this is from the uh, report published in the Statesman Milledgeville, Milledgeville, uh, Georgia, uh, January 1829. The length of the foot was 18 and the breadth nine inches. The monster from every appearance must have moved forward in an easy or hesitating gait. His stride from heel to toe being a trifle over six feet. Um, The men and the boy are like, okay forget this, we're out of here. So they get out of the swamp and they tell their neighbors what they had seen. So um, this story gets around and it intrigues a group of hunters who live just across the Florida state line. Um, there's, so there's nine of them and they all decide to go looking for whatever made the, the footprints. And one of the men that goes is the one that saw, one of the ones that saw the footprint originally, right? And so he helps sort of lead them to that area through the swamp. Um, again, from the statesman. 
Following for some days the direction of their guide, they came at length upon the track first discovered, some vestiges of which were still remaining. Pursuing these traces several days longer, they came to halt on a little eminence and determined to pitch their camp and refresh themselves for the day. So then, during the night, some kind of wild animal or man uh, charges into their camp. Again, from the statesman. Uh, The next minute, he was full in their view, advancing upon them with a terrible look and ferocious mien. Our little band instinctively gathered close in a body and presented their rifles. The human being, nothing daunted, bounded upon his, oh, sorry, the huge being, nothing daunted, bounded upon his victims, and in the same instant received the contents of seven rifles. He did not fall alone, nor until he had glutted his wrath with the death of five of them. I love how this guy <laughs> whoever wrote this, um, which he Very effected Beowulf by... Yeah, 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 it's like... Um, which he effected by wringing the head from the body. Ooh. Writhing exhausted, at length he fell with his hapless prey beneath his grasp. So um, as whatever, whoever was laying, dying on the ground, the surviving men tried to get a closer look at it, right? Um, they said uh, he was around 13 foot tall uh, with breadth and volume of just proportions. So one big dude, right? Uh, 13 feet tall. I mean, that's, that's absolutely huge. Crazy. Um, so the creature was, I mean, that's like twice as tall of like, a six, you know, obviously, of a six woman, you know, like think of a six foot tall human twice that tall. That's insane. Um, so the creature was still roaring and moaning, and the hunters were afraid more, it would like attract more of its kind. So they just left, left him dying there where he'd fallen. And, and that was their story. And so there's actually a bunch more of these like Arkansas wild man stories, or, um, uh, you know, they called it in Florida the skunk ape, skunk ape. Um, but there's a bunch of them during that time of like these sort of like, you know, some of the encounters were violent like this, where it would seem like it was maybe defending territory or, or, or they surprised it or something like that. But very often it was like, I think one, some people saw it chasing some cows across a field or something. And so they went after it and it like knocked some guy off his horse and like stole his horse. So this is like some, whatever this thing is, is like has a certain amount of intelligence, right? So, um, okay, so these stories obviously have been, you know, continuing on from there, right? From before we got here to when, you know, uh, early settlers got here to, uh, um, you know, Native American stories to current modern day ones, right? And, and like you said, ones all over the world. So I have a couple modern stories, um, uh, two of them. And um, so the first one, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many that it's like hard to choose, right? There's like all these video recordings and sightings and encounters, and some of them are really incredible. Um, it's really hard to choose, but um, the the first one that I chose is one that kind of had the most uh, impact on me, right? Um, and this is the story of Ron Moorhead and Alberry's Sierra Camp encounters. Um, so uh, this, so they um, made a series of recordings. Um, between 1971 and 1972. So for a lot of reasons, I find these recordings extremely compelling more than just like the visuals out there for some reason. I don't know. Like there's, there is something compelling about the, you know, you know, the, I forget the name of the people who filmed it, but um, the one that you referenced earlier in the, in the show. Um, 
but there's something about the sound of them that like I don't know it gets past the like the plausibility of the sort of blurry image where you're right. like what is that thing yeah. is that guy in a cinnamon and also we're all so used to debunking things now and being suspicious of photoshop and fakery yeah, and all exactly, of that but exactly. something like sound sound is so much harder to like fake mm-hmm. like that right mm-hmm. like you certainly can can create computer sounds but well, well, we'll get into the whole. Probably, it also probably touches off something primal in us, you know. Yeah, right. The, There's something stirring about sound, the sound. Yeah, the sound of a potential predator out there, something yeah, in yeah. the woods that we don't know what it is. Yep. Um, so, and, and also just the sound of intelligence, right? Like you kind of know when something's trying to communicate something. Um, so I actually came across this story doing the research on a 411 show, right? And they, they were actually featured in that film. So we, we talked about this a little bit. Like, I think we, you know, we both heard some of the recordings on that film, but I went and sort of dove deeper into the story. And um, we'll post some links to, um, they're actually on the internet. You can hear these recordings. They're, they're on their, um, uh, what is it, Ron, uh, Ron Moorhead's uh, site and um, also on YouTube. So we'll post the link on our site. Okay, so uh, here's the story. So back in 1972, um, a journalist and former Vietnam officer, Al Berry, traveled with Ron Moorhead to a remote camp in the Sierras, basically to disprove what he thought was going to be a hoax. So um, hunters had been using this camp for a couple years and had reported these strange occurrences there. So Al was actually taken there to verify the occurrences, and they brought him because he was a journalist and because he was known for being sort of a skeptic, right? So what better person to sort of like prove something to bring someone who already thinks you're lying, <laughs> right? So um, he took that what that was then, you know, the state of our uh, equipment um, to help record it and um, some plaster of Paris to take imprints. So the camp itself was high up and far out in the wilderness of the Sierra Mountains, required a long travel by, I think they went on horseback, um, guided by the hunters that had um, actually like sort of founded the camp. Um, There was no direct trail to it and its location was kept a secret um, for the purposes of the hunters and and so on. But the area is actually said to be between um, Lake Tahoe and Yosemite National Park. Uh, The Sierra Camp is over um, 8,000 feet in elevation and is over eight miles um, walking distance from the nearest closest road, right? So the trip is supposed to be actually very exhausting. And to help keep it secret, about halfway through, very often the the hunters would um, would take different paths so they wouldn't wear a trail there. So they were very conscientious about not wanting people to sort of blow up this, this, um, this hunting ground. Um, okay, so the first time they went out there, the uh, expedition didn't produce much. Um, besides some uh, impressions. Um, and I was like, okay, whatever, you know, this maybe this is, he actually even thought that pointed to the fact that it was being faked, right? He's like, okay, I found the footprints he wanted. And anyways, but they do, they go back. And the second time they go back, um, it discovered, uh, it delivered way more than he had expected. So I'm going to read some of his words, some of his description about his experience there. Um, I hiked into this camp with pre-knowledge that the hunters claimed strange things had happened there, beginning with the previous season. I backpacked with a state-of-the-art Sony portable tape recorder and some plaster of Paris and my wits, thoroughly convinced that someone was pulling someone's leg, that it might be mine, 
and that I would expose the hunter's, quote, mystery. The first time in, nothing happened, but I saw some inordinately large but old toe, ball, and heel foot impressions at a sandy location. They seemed static, but I didn't dismiss them. Uh, I rather, I'd rather figured this was evidence that finger pointed back to more of the hunters and some jest. The second time thing I went in, things were different. At dusk, as dusk became dark, something approached camp from the ridge above, wrapping on wood or rocks as it came. And when it arrived, two voices that I could discern, it vocalized, and the sounds carried through the trees. I've never heard human voices carry every before or ever since. And it whistled a clear, beautiful whistle like a bird might make between its kind and at one point back and forth with us. So as they're like, you know, as they, as they start to have this encounter, they're trying to communicate with what, what's ever out there. Um, they did have a film camera with them, I think, which was running, or at least in one of the, um, one of the recording sessions where they were like, kind of like hiding in their shelter, <laughs> like locked themselves because they were scared, but they were sort of filming themselves trying to communicate with whatever was out in the woods. Um, so, um, they went back a number of times, um, making many recordings over the next two years. Um, they never saw them directly, uh, but maybe as like passing shadows or just out of the corner of their eye, um, just on the outskirts of their camp, um, in the firelight. Sometimes it seemed like they were trying to scare them or warn them away, or maybe they were just curious, right? Maybe they just didn't like them being out there. Um, they set up like trail cameras, uh, but they were sort of expertly dodged, right? And they never caught anything on camera. Um, but the camp members, I think they, Ron Moorhead does talk about seeing strange things over the years um, in that area. I think even, I don't know if you remember this, um, I think even one of them reported a long tubular beam of light that sort of slowly moved through the camp at night as if it were probing it. I don't know if you remember that part, but... I don't, but, in, but that's okay. fascinating. But it was weird, weird stuff. You know, it's like one of those areas where like like phenomena was happening. But definitely central to this experience was this encounter with some, some um, they called it a family or tribe of beings that lived out there mm-hmm. and that maybe didn't want them to be here. But, um, but they do interact with them, right? There is a, a moment of interaction where they, you know, they're sort of communicating back and forth. Um, but the sounds, it's really hard to describe them. That's um, what my next question was going to be. Like, what's that? What your like, opinion, what, like, how would you describe it in your own words? Okay, well, I'm going to try and play it. I feel like with, like, I don't know, fair use, uh, we, we can, like, play, like, five five or ten seconds of this. We're going to get um, so, huh? sued by big feet. <laughs> by, by who? Big feet. By big feet. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to play it. I mean, maybe we'll cut it out if it's a problem, but I think, I think we can play like five seconds of it or whatever. And obviously we'll put links to their website or whatever and they can hear it. But I just kind of won't even want you to hear it, but hopefully we'll be able to play this for our audience. Um, so I'm just going to play it yeah, really quick. Just okay? play it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> isn't that crazy isn't that fucking crazy like the sound of it it's it's very stirring like you it's like nothing you've ever heard before right and it's like it kind of sounds sometimes like a monkey or or a 
a baboon or something, but then also like a wolf, but then also like language. Right. There's something kind of dog-like about it, but yeah, also, right. but yeah, it, it's it's kind of and there's this veers like back snarl, and forth. Right. But then it's also this like kind of it almost sounds like Japanese or something at some point, you know, like it definitely sounds like there's language in there. And so they went on to, you know, um, uh, have this recording analyzed and it became like a big thing where like, you know, all of these professors thought they were trying to be duped and people were like, you know, mad at each other, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, thinking everyone's stupid, but no one was able to prove or disprove uh, their authenticity, right? Only that they didn't know what made those sounds, right? Like definitely beyond, the, some of them are definitely beyond the register of a human being. You can just kind of hear the like, you know, when it snarls or some of the more booming sounds just sound like it's coming from a larger uh, being than a human being, right? So, mm -hmm. so those are the um, those are some of the uh, Sierra Camp recordings. And like I said, we'll put we'll put up a link so if you want to go listen to more of them. Okay. Um, so uh, my last story, um, this particular one um, I got from a film called uh, Skunk Ape Lives by Stacy Brown Jr. Um, and it's it's from a story or a set of stories in Florida. Um, but the particular one that like I sort of gravitated to, and I'll tell you why sort of afterwards, um, was about this ranger um, who wished to remain anonymous. And he actually gives the interview on film with his voice disguised and he sort of blurred out. Okay, so... And, and just real quickly for people who may not know, the reason why uh, the whole skunk ape is a term... It's because sometimes there's like a smell, sort of like a skunky smell reported with these creatures, right? Yeah, and I think I think also one of some of the first sightings in that area, they saw them with a stripe down the back. So uh -huh. there was like one that actually had a stripe. Okay. So it's it's unclear like is was that the origin of the skunk ape? Is because of the, because of the stripe or because of the smell? But they definitely there is definitely a powerful smell that follows these creatures around but um yeah in florida they're definitely called the skunk ape um so it was 1998 um the ranger was 37 years old he had been working with the forestry department for about 20 years um and that summer there was a forest fire in the apple man I, I should know how to say this apple chila chicola apple <laughs> National Forest in the Florida Panhandle. Um, so one morning, uh, he reports for duty at the Forestry Command Center um, where, you know, they're going to see what they're doing for the day. And him and another man are given the task of looking for animals. So I guess sometimes during these fires, you know, animals run out of the forest into the road um, if they're injured or had bad smoke inhalation. Um, and so their job was to pick them up in their truck and bring them back to the command center where they could get treatment. So, um, so they're out there making the rounds and they're driving their truck and they said he's going about 45 miles an hour. And all of a sudden this black figure comes running out of the forest and ends up underneath the driver's side tire. Um, so they get out thinking they had just killed a bear. Uh, so they go and put the, um, go to put the body in the back of the truck and realize this thing is definitely not a bear. Um, they had never seen anything like it. So he describes it as six foot tall, um, legs and kneecaps like a human, 
which I think is an interesting detail. His his arms reach down to about his knees. And I think they sort of indicate that this might have been sort of juvenile, a juvenile or something like that. But um, he had long hair on the arms and legs and on the torso um, and, and much shorter hair uh, on the torso, sorry, long hair on the arms and legs. And um, he says the muscle definition was like a UFC fighter. He said it was a big, heavy-looking dude. Um, and he also said it had a face like a chimpanzee with a long protruding snout, kind of like a baboon or a werewolf, which makes me have some questions about the Michigan dog man, right? Like there's, there's definitely different descriptions of, uh, um, of whatever these things are yeah. uh, as being different in different locations. Bipedal, hairy. Bipedal, hairy, but then there's different um, descriptions of the type of snout. So sometimes... Mm-hmm. It looks in certain areas. It looks more like ape-like. In other areas, it looks more sort of baboon-like. In other areas, like more dog-like. There's so there's some question about like are there different sort of species of this thing, right? So, and he um, lastly he said it had eyes just like us. Um, so now, uh, um, so now they so they call um, some of the officials in from the command center. And nobody knows what this thing is. So they load it into the truck. They bring it back to the command center. He said it weighed about three or 400 pounds when they lifted it in. Um, so the officials say they're, they're going to go analyze it and tell them what exactly this thing is. But in the meantime, they go back to the command center to make a statement. Um, so they go in this back room and they start filling out an incident report. Uh, and about 10 minutes in... Um, they're told to stop and wait for some people who are coming to see them. So about an hour and a half or 45 minutes um, to what they described as government guys show up. Um, and they take them out to the parking lot and ask them where this thing happened. Um, they, they tell them, uh, you know, where it is. And then they examine the truck and like collect some blood, blood samples and hair samples from the truck. Then they ask them to take them there, but they want to go in their vehicle. Um, so, so they're, so off they went, um, they get there and, um, the, the ranger and the other guys sort of take the government guys through what happened. Um, and then at one point the government guy who he thinks is in charge says, Hey, you hit a bear. And the ranger says, sir, that's no bear we hit. And the, the government guy again retorts, uh, you don't understand. You ran over a bear. And he goes on to say, every time you tell this story, you ran over a bear, right? And he says that if they speak a word of it, they could face charges, lose their pensions, and so on. So he's so this like, is like okay. the men in black. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and apparently this is a thing. And that's why I sort of chose this story. But um, the, the ranger believes that they actually knew what they hit and had even seen them before. And for whatever reason, did not, did not want anyone to know about it and was willing to go to great lengths to keep it a secret. So, I mean, I definitely didn't think we were going to come across. I mean, the government is covering up so many things right now. Yeah, You know, like UFOs, aliens, underground bases, Mel's (laughs) Hole, Sasquatch. Our tax dollars are going to like (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, but I mean, at first it didn't make any sense to me why this would be something to keep saying. It just doesn't what why like why would they but then when you think about it for a minute like then i heard more stories about logging companies hiring hunters to track them down because i guess they cause problems a lot for logging companies but i think we should definitely get into it because i think there are a number of reasons why the 
sort of powers that be would want to keep this all a, a secret. That would make an interesting episode. Just kind yeah. of like different theories on that. Like Totally. You know. I mean, imagine hearing a, a government agent uh, hearing that somebody discovered some endangered bird on a track of land that they wanted to put a pipeline through, right? Not hard to imagine them sort of being pressured into say they never saw it, right? And so maybe something like that's going on, right? So I don't know, or maybe there's even something sort of deeper there, right? Like, you know, it's it's hard for us. It's, it's you know, for um, certainly for, uh, you know, the uh, the official United States of America, you know, has a hard time seeing Native Americans as human beings, right? They don't like, uh, uh, you know, acknowledging their right to sort of land. Imagine them trying to acknowledge the right uh, of some sort of intelligent creature that living out there and what their rights would be, right? So it's not hard to imagine once you start sort of digging into the psychology of it all. And I think there's even maybe more to it than that, right? Like our ability to sort of share the earth with, with another intelligence, right? Like, I don't know. I feel like our outlook as human, as human beings are very much like we're the smartest, onlyest, bestest, we own the planet. Right. You know, imagine trying to share it with another intelligent species. or, or Which we already do, and I think we have a bit of Yeah, which is already the truth, right. Right. Yeah. Just waiting to get so. to hear about dolphins. Yeah, 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 totally. But then there's also just this idea, like, is there this other, you know, type of species that missed some sort of evolutionary crossroads or shunned the light of civilization? Or is just different, you know? Or just different. Or, yeah, just, just not built in the same way. Choosing that, to live. Choosing to live. Continuously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um so, yeah, and I mean, you know, I think there's, you know, we'll, we'll get into it, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of, like, possibilities there. Like, you know, is this thing, you know, some people believe this is some sort of hominid, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's not really that much of a leap, right, to think about. Like, evolution, we now know, is definitely not a straight line for us, right? Mm -hmm. That definitely human beings had sex with Neanderthals, right? We have... Or I know, wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have Neanderthal. Yeah, um, red-headed people do, supposedly. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. So exactly, right? So we know it was like kind of a mess. Like basically anything standing on two legs was fucking each other. Right? They were like definitely crossbreeding. There were, there were like, you know, competing um, tribes, um, competing species, uh, you know, and they, they know now that there was a an actual species um Homo florensis, <laughs> which was three foot tall human species that was alive until like 50,000 years ago or something like that, that lived. Now it was like, you know, they were sort of um, uh, just on this one island, they, they think, um, the island mm. of Flores in Indo Indonesia. But still, there was a smaller version of human being around at the same time, right? Why couldn't there have been a larger one, right? That we just didn't, we didn't know about yet. They just discovered this one like last year, right? So, so who knows, right? Like who knows what this is, but legendaries animals all the time have been, you know, proved to be real before, like the gorilla or the elephant bird, you know, Madagascar has its own completely different set of primates that only exist there. So I don't know. I mean, like, what else? Or could... creatures that deep, deep down under the sea, like yeah, exactly. such a depth where they speculated no life could exist, and yet it's flourishing with life. Yeah. So, 
Okay, so those are those are my stories. Oh my god, those are so good. Those are so good, and it segues nicely into mine. Great, I'm eager to hear, and then okay. we'll get into it. We'll get into what we think these things are. But yes, let's do. Your, okay, so yeah. mine is the story of Albert Ostman, who was a Sasquatch abductee. What? What? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> I didn't see this coming. Okay, great. Okay. Okay. I love this. Okay. All right. Okay. So in 1924, Albert Osman decided to take a break from his construction job. And he set out for a prospecting trip in the wilderness of British Columbia, Canada. So his plan was to search for a lost gold mine that he'd heard about um, and also like take a much needed vacation at the same time. Uh, so he hired a Native American guide from the area to take him to the site he was looking for. And it was uh, near something called the Toba Inlet. And his guide turned out to be very talkative and friendly and told him a lot of stories. And so on the way, he told him one story about a white man who'd been seen going in and out of the same lost mine carrying out bags of gold. But one day he went in and he never came out. And the guide said that he thought that maybe a Sasquatch had got him. So Albert's first reaction was, this is the first time he'd ever heard that word. He didn't know what a Sasquatch was. So he asked him what it was. And the guide said, they have hair all over their bodies, but they are not animals. They are people, big people living in the mountains. My uncle saw the tracks of one that were two feet long. Okay, so Albert said he didn't believe, quote, believe in their fables about mountain giants and that maybe thousands of years ago there could have been something like that, but not nowadays, which is, you know, it's kind of rude. Right. Um, But just wait, he gets his. (laughs) You're allowed to exist in the past, but not in the present, right? Right. So anyway, the guide responded, there may not be many, but they still exist. Foreshadowing. Okay. So... They arrive at the site at around 4 p.m. and set up camp. And this is um, like where he's going to stay before he sets off in search of, of, you know, this old mine and, you know, does some prospecting. So it's near a mouth of a creek. They ate dinner together and Albert told the guide to watch for him in the same location in about three weeks when he'd be ready to leave. So after that initial night, Uh, The guide left, and Albert set out to explore the area and find a permanent campsite. Um, He ended up doing a lot of mountain climbing. Uh, He was lugging this huge pack sack that weighed about 80 pounds, he said, and he stopped to stay the night at different locations. During the day, he did a little hunting and prospecting while making his way through the woods. And when you listen to his account, it's like, really obvious that he knows how to survive in the wilderness and he Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time there, which gives a little more credence to his story, frankly. Um, So finally he came to a spot that he wanted to use as his permanent camp. Um, And he ended up doing, uh, sorry, lost my place, lost my place. Okay. So he hoisted his backpack up on a pole so critters couldn't mess with it. And he created a, a little fireplace of stones to cook on before he finally settled in for the night and he went to sleep. And Albert described himself as a heavy sleeper. So 
It's not surprising that when he woke up the next morning, he had had no clue what had happened. And basically his campsite was disturbed. Something had been there clearly because, you know, stuff was moved around and they hadn't taken any of his supplies as far as he could tell. But his first thought was that maybe a porcupine or a bear had been the culprit, you know, ransacking the site looking for food. Um, So that night when he went to bed, he loaded his rifle, he laid it under the edge of his sleeping bag and slept right next to it. Um, And because porcupines like leather, which who knew? I didn't know this. Like to wear or to like eat? (laughs) (laughs) I guess eat. I don't know. Um, Maybe, maybe wear. Um, But anyway, he put his shoes in the bottom of his sleeping bag. Okay. For safekeeping. Yep which comes in to the story later. He'll need those. Um, So the next morning, he woke up to discover that his backpack had been turned upside down, but it was still suspended from the pole. So obviously something could get up high to access this, whether it's standing that high or it can fly or it can climb. Um, And when he investigated, he found that a few things were missing. Some prunes and pancake flour were both gone. Um, But it had left, you know, the majority of his supplies and they were all untouched. So in addition to their leather fixation, porcupines apparently, according to him, also love salt. And because his salt was still left there, Albert deduced that this couldn't have been a porcupine after all. So by process of elimination, okay, it's not a porcupine. So these mysterious visits where he wakes up to find his camp disturbed, went on for about three nights. So after that, the very next night, he went to sleep as usual in his sleeping bag, um, where you know he put his shoes inside of it again, and he'd also stowed some food supplies for safekeeping, so that like even if they went into his pack sack and raided that, he'd at least have some. He also had his Winchester rifle right near him in case he heard anything during the night. In the middle of the night, he said, quote, I was awakened by something picking me up. I was half asleep. <laughs> I was half asleep at first and didn't and at first did not remember where I was. As I began to get my wits together, I remembered I was on a prospecting trip and in my sleeping bag. My first thought was it must be a snow a snow slide, which kind of makes sense. You know, you, like all of a sudden he's like all in the middle of his sleeping right, right. bag and moving around. He's and, like you know, disoriented. What's going on? He's like, what's happening? Why am yes. I moving? Right. Exactly. But there was no snow around my camp. Then it felt like I was tossed on horseback, but I could feel whoever it was, was walking. I tried to reason out what kind of animal this could be. I tried to get my sheath knife, my sheath knife and cut my way out But I was in an almost sitting position and the knife was under me. I could not get a hold of it, but the rifle was in front of me. I had a good hold of that and had no intention of letting it go. So he's basically been scooped up in his sleeping bag and is being carried. Like I'm imagining slung over something's back. Oh, he's like slung over like fireman style yeah. or he's being carried like a little baby or something like which. Well, it doesn't really say, but I'm okay. assuming like I'm, I'm assuming like over his back fireman style. Oh, I see. Okay. In the sleeping bag. So like a, in right, a sack. Right, right. So and so he can kind of he's got very limited mobility. Right. Okay. Um, he could also feel the cans of food and supplies being jostled against his body as he was carried. 
Um, and after what seemed like an hour, he starts to be able to get a sense of what kind of terrain they're going over. So at first, uh, they go up a very steep hill, like climbing a mountain and whatever that was, whatever it was that was carrying him was breathing very hard and gave a cl occasional slight coughs from the exertion. And Albert said, now I knew this be, this must be one of the mountain Sasquatch giants the Indian told me about. So now he's a believer. <laughs> Well, yeah, because he's right. <laughs> carried, carried I mean, you know, as night, you would right? be. <laughs> so. It's hard not to believe in something when it's on, when you're on its back. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So he says, I was in a very uncomfortable position and unable to move. He was positioned sitting on his feet. And um, he describes one of his, uh, the hobnail soles of one of his boots was painfully digging into his foot. So this is not a comfortable situation that he's right. in. And it continues on for a while. He said, I, it was very hot inside. I was lucky for this fellow's hand was not big enough to close up the whole bag when he picked me up. There was a small opening in the top. Otherwise, I would have choked to death. So he could feel that the kind of terrain they were going, they were going over um, sort of turned into a downhill progression, which was a little bit easier on him. Um, although sometimes the sleeping bag that he was inside and his body touched the ground as the creature was kind of like, I guess, dragging him along the ground because uh -huh, it was easier right. when, it, when they went downhill. Um, and then he then sensed that they were on level ground and he was being carried at a trot. So then it speeded up when, it, when the surface got level. And by this time, Albert had cramps in his legs from being in the same weird forced position for so long. Um, and after about three hours of being carried up and down hills and across, you know, what felt like fields, the creature finally set him down. And the creature, it, it had also taken his pack sack because Elbert could hear that drop. He could hear the sound of his backpack being dropped on the ground. So like, just like pausing for a second, like he, he um, I mean, think about the the size and strength of this thing, right? Imagine... I don't know if you've ever tried to like lift a person, another person, <laughs> they're like really heavy. And you know yeah. what I mean? For like, even like a fireman, like literally carrying somebody out, right? Imagine hours. carrying somebody on your back for three hours. Up and like, down mountains. That's a superhuman, you know, feat of strength, right? right. Like okay. whatever is carrying him is definitely not human, right? That we would, I don't know, or, or some type of like, you know. Very, very, very strong person, you know. Right. For three hours. For three up hours. Up and down like, mountains. That doesn't sound. Yeah, it's okay. just ridiculous. There's probably like one guy that's like, no, I could do that. But okay. Normal people, no. Okay. okay. So anyway, he said, I could hear the cans rattle. Then I heard chatter, some kind of talk I did not understand. The ground was sloping. So when he let go of my sleeping bag, I rolled downhill. So at this point, he was finally able to stick his head out of the bag and get some fresh air, take a few deep breaths. Um, and he tried to crawl out of the bag, but his legs were so numb from being stuck in the same position that at first he couldn't really move them. And it was still dark outside. Albert guessed it was a little after four in the morning. He said, I could not see what my captors looked like. He tried to massage his legs to get the feeling back into them and put on his shoes, which were still in the sleeping bag thankfully, because of these leather-loving porcupines. Um, and then he said, I could hear now that there was at least four of them. They were standing around me and continuously chattering. 
He said he knew he was among the Sasquatches that his Native American guide had told him about. Um, now he had to figure out how he was going to make his escape. So they've abducted him. He's somewhere in the middle of nowhere. He, he doesn't know where he is in the forest in the middle of the night Oof. <laughs> with a bunch of Sasquatches. Right. So by this point, the feeling had returned to his legs gradually. Um, and he's able to get out of the sleeping bag and stand up a little shaky still. And he's still hanging onto his rifle for security. And then he speaks up and he, he says, what do you fellows want with me? And then they only just start chattering again. So they don't speak the same language, but they speak a language. So as it began to get lighter outside, he could start to make out the outlines of these beings. And he said there were two big and two little ones. And he said they were all covered with hair, no clothes on at all. He could see that he was surrounded by mountains. Um, and thankfully he was wearing a watch. So he had some sense of time. Um, he's got a few other items with him, like a compass that like helped guide him later on in the story. But anyway, he looks at his watch and he can see that it's like 4.25 a.m. at this point. And it continues to get lighter. And now he can start to see these, what he calls people more clearly. He said they look like a family, an old man, old lady, two young ones, a boy and a girl. The boy and the girl seemed to be scared of me. The old lady did not seem to be too pleased about what the old man had dragged home, but the old man was waving his arms and telling them what he had in mind. They all left me then. So he's just assuming from their chatter that this is what's going on. It, it seems pretty obvious from, mm -hmm. I guess, from the body right. language. He's like, what okay. Yeah. So in addition to his rifle, a watch, and some food supplies... He had a prospecting lens, a compass on strings around his neck and kind of like tucked into his shirt. So he's kind of set up for no matter what happens, you know, he can, you know, be in the wilderness by himself and sort of like hopefully find his way out. But at this point, he started looking around at his location. Um, he was in a small valley of about eight or 10 acres surrounded by high mountains on the southeast. And there was a V-shaped opening that he said was about eight feet wide and 20 feet high. So he thinks this was how I was brought in through this opening. And um, the old, he, he keeps calling him the old man and the old woman, but the older Sasquatch was now sitting near the opening and he decides I'm going to find out what they want with me and then I'll be able to like figure out how to get away from them. So um, he moved his belongings up toward two small cypress trees to make a sort of temporary shelter. He emptied out his pack sack to see what he had left. Um, he still had some food, some coffee, his knife, some different things. Uh, obviously these creatures had taken his prunes. He mentioned that more than once. So he must've really been into his prunes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also missing um, were his prospecting pick and a can of matches. Although he did have a few matches left in his safety box. So in a pinch, he could start a fire if he really needed to rely on the matches. But he said that he wasn't too worried about it because he had this prospecting lens and if he found some dry wood, he could use the sunlight to start a fire. 
So like, just as a side note, his detail, his his account is so detailed that. And yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah, it's it's boring at times. Honestly, <laughs> right, you have to get through right. it, so you're kind of like it it's makes like, it more credible. Credible. And <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. I had three shoelaces, but my prunes were gone. Um, so like. Anyway, uh, the way he tells it, he had the strong presence of mind to methodically take stock of his equipment and his surroundings. And he wasn't like rocking back and forth, shaking in terror and babbling like I'd be doing. Okay. So then he decides to do something totally normal under the circumstances. Um, he goes looking around to see if there's any wood and water and notices that the boy and girl were watching him from behind some juniper bushes. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> um, and he eventually finds a spring in the area. So now he's set. He's got a water source. Uh, he brings it back in one of his empty cans. And on the way back, he noticed where the Sasquatch family must be sleeping. And he said that there was like a shelf in the mountain wall with kind of an overhanging rock and the floor was covered with dry moss, like a lot of it. So they had these kind of woven blankets made out of strips of dry cedar bark and patches of moss. And he said they look practical and warm and obviously you wouldn't need to wash them. So it was pretty evident to him that these this is like sleeping quarters for the Sasquatch family. When he got back, the boy was looking through his belongings in his makeshift camp, but he didn't touch anything. So he's just kind of standing there, like curious, looking through stuff. And he said, the first day, not much happened. I had to eat my fo my food cold, which seems like the least of his worries. He's <laughs> like, these damn Sasquatches, I can't, can't even have, have a hot meal. Right. The young fellow was coming near me and seemed curious about me. He had an empty snuff box rolled and he rolled it toward the Sasquatch boy. And he said he sprang up quick as a cat and grabbed it. He went over to his sister and showed her. They found out how to open and close it. They spent a long time playing with it. So then the boy brought it over to the dad Sasquatch and showed him and quote, they had a long chatter. So then Albert says, the next morning I made up my mind to leave this place if I had to shoot my way out. So he's getting scared pissed off he's just like over the sasquatch abduction experience um plus he's running out of food that he can eat um and he didn't know the exact location but he figured he would go downhill and end up near civiliza civilization at some point um so he decides to pack up all of his stuff uh and start heading toward that opening in the wall and then all of a sudden, he said, the old man got up, held out his hands as though he would push me back. I pointed toward the opening. I wanted to go out, but he stood there pushing toward me. And he said something that sounded like, soka, soka. I backed up about 60 feet. I did not want to be too close. I thought if I had to shoot my way out, a 30-30 might not have much effect on this fellow. It might make him mad. I only had six shells, so I decided to wait. There must be a better way than killing him in order to get out from here. So he went back to his camp to try to plot his escape. It's obvious this, they want him there, but he doesn't know what for. Right, right. But like, he can't are they leave. Eat him or are they going to try and like? Make him yeah, are they going to eat stuff him? I mean, <laughs> that's the main. Like that. That's the question of the hour. Are they going to eat him? Okay. Right. 
So one idea he had was making friends with the boy or girl, and he thought maybe they might be willing to help him. They seem curious, um, but, you know, of course, they don't share a language. You can't talk to them. And then he recalled a story of a guy who'd saved himself from being attacked by a mad bull by blowing snuff in his eyes. So his next idea was, you know, maybe if he could get the the dad Sasquatch close enough to him um, and get him interested in the snuff box, he could leave a little in it, you know, so that the father could try it. Um, but even if he could get away, it would be a long journey back. Um so he also needed to kind of like orient himself a little more and, and try and figure out what his surroundings were. And he estimated at this point that he'd gone about 25 miles when he first wow. found his first permanent camp from his starting point. And then when he was kidnapped in his sleep over that three hour period, he'd probably been taken an additional 25 miles from there. So, um, he knew that if this creature had taken him either 25 miles to the west or south, they'd be near salt water. So he, by deduction, he was able to figure out that um, they traveled northeast. So when he escaped, he knew now he needed to travel south and over two mountains, and then um, he'd hit civilization. Gotcha. Okay. So the next day... He said he didn't see the old lady until around 4 p.m. when she returned with her arms full of grass and twigs, as well as spruce and hemlock and some kind of nuts that grow on the ground. And he said they were some kind of nuts that were indigenous to the Vancouver Island area. Um, so he's like living with them and he's right, right. able to sort give this account of like their daily though, right? life. Right. Yeah. But kind of off to the side. Yeah. Yeah. And they're near him and they keep coming around and they're keeping an eye on him, making sure that he's staying with them. But so far he has no clue what they want. So then he said the young fellow went up the mountain to the east every day. He could climb better than any mountain goat. He picked some kind of grass with long, sweet roots he gave me some one day. They tasted very sweet. I gave him another snuff box with about a teaspoon of snuff in it. So he's like getting the kid hooked on snuff. I'm not really <laughs> That's sure. So weird. When is this? <laughs> when, when, when was this? Sorry. 1924. 1924. 1924. Okay. Yeah. He tasted it and then went to the old man. He licked it with his tongue. They had a long chat. So then he fashioned some dippers out of empty food cans and a, a piece of like a tree limb for their handles. So he's making these kind of like handled dipper devices. And he said, I threw one over to the young fellow when he was playing near my camp. He picked it up and looked at it. Then he went to the old man and showed it to him. They had a long chatter. Then he came to me, pointed at the dipper and pointed at his sister. I could see that he wanted me to make one for her too. So he's like, Hey, my Sasquatch sister wants a dipper. <laughs> right. Um, hey, and he make makes a dipper. Right. So he made one for her. Um, and then the whole time he was only standing about eight feet away, he said. So then when he made the dipper, he dipped it in some water and drank from it, kind of to show them how you use it. And he said he was very pleased, almost smiled at me. Then I took a tin of snuff and snapped my lips and said, That's good. The young fellow pointed to the old man and said something that sounded like ook. I got the idea that the old man likes snuff and the young fellow wanted a box for the old man. 
I shook my head. I motioned with my hand for the old man to come to me, but the boy apparently didn't understand what he, what he meant. And he just went over to his sister, gave her the dipper, and they left, and they didn't come back. So by this point, he'd been with the Sasquatch family for six days. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and he says that he was thinking that if only he could get the old man to come over to him and eat a whole box of snuff, quote, that would kill him for sure. And that way, kill himself, then I wouldn't be guilty of murder, which really bums me out. I mean, unless they were planning to eat him. I mean, maybe they were. But. Yeah, it's hard to say. But I mean, like you're in this situation where you're like, you're being deprived of your freedom, right? Like you don't know. You're you're being held against your will. You're you're scared. These things can, you know, clearly overpower you. So what do you do? Like it's survival mode time. Okay, so then he goes into like a very detailed description of each one of these Sasquatches. So he says, the old lady was a meek old thing. The young fellow by this time was quite friendly. The girl would not hurt anybody. Her chest was flat like the boys, no development like young ladies. I'm sure that if I could get the old man out of the way, I could easily have brought the girl out with me to civilization. But what good would that have been? I would have ha- I would have had to keep her in a cage for public display. I do not think we have the right to force our way of life on other people. I do not think they would like it. The noise and racket in a modern city, they would not like any more than I do. So he's considering them people mm-hmm. more than animals. Um, and then he said the young fellow might have been 11 to 18 years old and about seven feet tall and might have weighed 300 pounds, kind of like the story with your creature that was yeah right right his chest would have been 50 to 55 inches his waist about 36 to 38 inches he had wide jaws narrow forehead that slanted upward around the back um about four or five inches higher than the forehead so kind of higher in the back than the front the hair on their heads was about six inches long the hair on their body and chest was short and thick in places Okay, so I love this part. He said, the woman's hair on her forehead had an upward turn, like some women have. They call it bangs among women's hairdos. <laughs> bangs, dude, I love it. <laughs> so I have some, something in common with Sasquatch ladies. Yeah, yeah. Because I love, I love bangs. Uh, and he said, the old lady could have been anywhere between 40 and 70 years old. She was over seven feet tall. She would have been about five or 600 pounds. She had very wide hips and a goose-like walk. She was not built for beauty or speed. And this is totally unnecessary, but he does the sidebar to judge her, like, oh, lack, God, lack of hotness. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, He's like, the, the female Sasquatch is definitely not a hottie. The younger one, she's Not okay. hot. Yeah. yeah, he goes, <laughs> some of those brassieres and uplifts would have been a great improvement on her looks and, f- and her figure. Okay, Albert, let's see you spend all day gathering twigs and raising a Sasquatch family on the ledge of a cliff in the (laughs) middle of nowhere. See how sexy your butt is? (laughs) So then he says the man's eye teeth were longer than the rest of his teeth. So kind of fangy, I guess. But High not teeth. Are those wait. They, yeah, those are the fangy the ones. Fangy ones? The, like, those the are can, the fangs. Canine like so that's eye teeth. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But not long enough to be called tusks. The old man must have been near eight feet tall, big barrel chest and big hump on his back, powerful shoulders. His biceps on his upper arm were enormous and tapered down to his elbows. His forearms were longer than common people have, but well proportioned. His hands were wide, 
The palm was long and broad and hollow like a scoop. His fingers were short in proportion to the rest of his hand. His fingernails were like chisels. The only place they had no hair was inside their hands and the soles of their feet and upper part of their nose and eyelids. I never did see their eyes. They were covered with hair hanging over them. Huh. And he said, I have no idea what size shoes they would need. I was watching the young fellow's foot one day while he was sitting down. The soles of his feet seemed to be padded like a dog's foot. And the big toe was longer than the rest and very strong. In mountain climbing, all he needed was a footing for his big toe. They were very agile. So then he said, to sit down, they turned their knees out and came straight down. To rise, they came straight up without help of hands or arms. I don't think this valley was their permanent home. I think they moved from place to place as food was available in different localities. They might eat meat, but I never saw them eat or do, eat any or do any cooking. I think this was probably a stopover place, and the plants with the sweet roots on the mountainside might have been in season this time of year. They seemed to be most interested in them. The roots have a very sweet and satisfying taste. They always seem to do everything for a reason. Wasted, excuse me. They always seem to do everything for a reason. Wasted no time on anything they did not need. Um, so now we know big feet are not into social media. <laughs> when they were not looking for food, the old man and old lady were resting but the boy and girl were always climbing something or some other exercise. A favorite position was to take hold of his feet with his hands, I guess he means the boy, and balance on his rump, then bounce forward. (laughs) The idea seemed to be to see how far he could go without his his feet or hands touching the ground. Sometimes he made 20 feet. So these are just like such random, specific, (laughs) mundane details. Yeah. Okay. But he's still wondering, what do they want with me? They must understand I cannot stay here indefinitely. I will soon have to make a break for freedom. Not that I was mistreated in any way. One consolation was that the old man was coming closer each day and was very interested in my snuff. Watching me when I take a pinch of snuff, he seemed to think it was useless when I only put it inside my lips. So he's like, hey, why don't you just like chow down on that entire tin? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one morning, after he made breakfast, which included coffee, the old man and the boy came and sat down about 10 feet away from him. He gathered dry branches and moss and old labels, and he goes into detail talking about how he used these to start a fire. Um, And he said, I got my coffee pot boiling, and it was strong coffee, too, and the aroma from the boiling coffee was what brought them over. So Albert was sitting there eating his breakfast, drinking his coffee, and he started smacking his lips, pretending like this is like something super amazing he's eating. Um, Then he took out a box of snuff. He took some out, and before he could close it, the big Sasquatch reached for it. And Albert was afraid he'd waste it. There wasn't much left at this point. You know, he only had like a couple tins left. So he hung onto the box and encouraged him to just like take out a pinch. But instead... The old man grabbed the box, emptied the entire thing into his mouth, and swallowed all of it in a single gulp. And then he, like, licked the box clean with his tongue. So, you know, obviously this isn't a great idea. Um, And after a few minutes, the Sasquatch's eyes began to kind of, like, he said, roll over in his head. And he seemed to be looking 
straight up. So it's obvious that he's not feeling great. Um, so probably to get the bad taste out of his mouth, a Sasquatch then grabs this now cold coffee can and empties all of that into his mouth, grounds and all, um, which is not the right thing to do either. Um, and then he said, he stuck his head between his legs and rolled forward a few times away from me. Then he began to squeal like a stuck pig. I grabbed my rifle. I said to myself, this is it. If he comes for me, I will shoot him plumb between the eyes. But luckily, that didn't happen. Instead, the Sasquatch headed for the spring to get some water to wash it all down. And Albert saw his chance, and he had seconds, literally, to take it. So he quickly packed up his sleeping bag, the few cans he had left in his pack sack, and starts heading out. And meanwhile, the boy ran over to his mother, and he's chattering. And then she began to squeal. And then he said, I started for the opening in the wall. I just made it. The old lady was right behind me. I fired one shot at the rock over her head. I guess she had never seen a rifle fired before. She turned and ran and ran inside the wall. Albert loaded another shell in his rifle. He started downhill. He was looking back over his shoulder the entire time to see if they're still coming for him, but they didn't follow. So he sees he's in a canyon He's able to kind of figure out a way to, to get out. Um, he's obviously got a really long road ahead of him. But finally, after he trekked across the mountains, he finally hears a motor running and is able to locate some loggers nearby. He said, I told them I was a prospector and was lost. I did not like to tell them I had been kidnapped by Sasquatch. <laughs> because if I had told them, they probably would have said, he's crazy too. <laughs> So he found his way back. He's able to board a, a boat back to Vancouver. And then he said, that was my last prospecting trip and my only experience with what is known as Sasquatch. I know that in 1924, there were four Sasquatches living, that there might only be two now. The old man and the old lady might be dead at this time. But a journalist, and uh, this guy's also a Bigfoot researcher and author, his name is John Green, said that Albert's description of these creatures have been supported throughout the years by subsequent observations and other stories that have come to light. And not only that, but Albert signed a sworn affidavit and he took and passed a polygraph test hmm. 40 years after this event allegedly occurred. And so that is the story of Albert Osman being kidnapped by Sasquatches. Wow. I love it. Oh my God. Well, I mean, that's such a like interesting story because it's such a sustained encounter, right? It's not like, oh, the, you know, I thought, I thought I saw something there or like, right. no, definitely. It's like their day-to-day -day life. Standing there and then it ran. Like he was there for how long? A week or something? Oh or yeah. Oh yeah. Like over a week. all told over a week, it sounds like. And like observing them and observing them do the stuff that you would think. And like, he's camping right next to them. People would be doing it. Yeah. And he's camping there. It is curious. Like, I wonder what the interest was. Like, they, they, like at first I was like, oh, they're going to like go eat them or something. They're totally <laughs> going to eat them, yeah. But maybe not. Or maybe it was like, I don't know. Maybe it was like a pet. Maybe it was they're a like, pet. They're like, hey, I found like this a, little thing. and Or they thought he could like, or I don't know. It's Yeah, it's an odd, it's an odd like, what were they, what were they doing there? But 
But that's very interesting. Right. Um, and one other thing, like you touched on the missing 411 phenomena. Yeah. And one thing that I noticed is that some stories of people who'd gone missing in national forests and parks, eyewitnesses or people who have returned, like there was like this one kid, I think we did it on a past episode where this a boy went missing and then when he was found he said a bear took care of him and there's another story right, of right, somebody right. being carried off by bear like a bear-like man that's yep. bipedal you kind of have to wonder yeah is it like curiosity i mean like we have these stories about like you know watch out for the wild man in the the woods you know but they probably have stories too where they're like watch out for the hairless ones. They're really mean. And, you, right. know, you know, like they're probably scared of us too. Um, As they should be. Yeah. And w- which, you know, which speaks to the the notion of like, well, if these things exist, why, you know, why don't we see them? Why are they so hard to find? Like, why don't we find bodies? Why don't this or why don't that? And, you know, it makes me think of that story. I think it was in somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the guy who like lived some, something like, 200 yards off of a hiking trail for like 20 years remember the guy and he would like go into people's houses and like steal yeah he would go in and like steal extra supplies and like the people around there kind of knew some some someone was there like that someone was coming in and stealing stuff but yeah i think he was living in a tent like not far like just over a ridge from a uh, um, public hiking trail where people actually were actively hiking for 20 years. So if you're intelligent and you don't want to be seen for whatever reason, you don't want your way of life disrupted, you don't want to be killed, you know, like, um, you know, that that it wouldn't be hard for someone, into, for some type of intelligent species to stay hidden, especially ones that are, you know, so in touch with the forest and, and, and living in the wild that, you know, and, and the whole dead thing i mean my story was sort of a you know an allusion to that like you know maybe you know maybe bounty bodies have been found or maybe they bury their dead you know what i mean right. so you know like f- you know fossils only are like a very f- small fraction of you know what sort of dies in the, in the, in the forest right like mm-hmm. you have to have the proper conditions like if you're in a you know, pine forest or something, the bones break down, you know? Right. So, Plus if they're migrant too, you know, they're, gonna yeah, be moving they're, they're place moving to place. around all the time. They're used to evading other, you know, they they probably know how to like stay away, stay away from bears and wolves. And, you know, if you're living out there, you're pretty adept at, you know, at that type of stuff. So, you know, I'd be scared of us, right? There's the, there's that tribe that lives on some Island that um, every time someone tries to go near on like a, a boat or something they like come out and they start shooting at them with arrows because they know probably instinctively that it would be the end of their way of life right right if someone from a civilized civil you know quote civilized uh uh, you know society came in you know we know that showing certain tribes that have been isolated you know technology can ruin their society like in just a few years so you know maybe there's or some sort of instinctive shunning of, you know, you know, like they're kind of like the like homo sapien version of the Amish or something. <laughs> they're just like, <laughs> we're not into that stuff or, you know, anyways. So what do you, okay. So what do you think's going on here? Let's get down to it. Do, I mean, I would, I, I want to believe in it. 
Yeah. I'll say this much. Um, his story kind of swayed me just because of all of the mundane detail. <laughs> it's no, kind right, of like, right. right. Um, plus, it's pretty impressive that like 40 years later, you know, he's still swearing. Yeah, what right, happened. Right. And, you know, you hear about these deathbed confessions with people confessing to hoaxes. And, right. you know, he passes a polygraph all those years later. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Okay, so here's a question. What do you then. think? Okay. I think uh, I think there's definitely something out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we first went into this, I thought, okay, well, it's some type of primate we just don't know about, right? Like, it's evaded detection, you know. Well, not they haven't evaded detection, right? There's all these stories and sightings and footprints and, and all that, but somehow – um, it's not recognized by science, right? For whatever reasons, right? Prejudiced against the idea of a wild man. Um, you know, it's it's definitely entered into that world where you're not allowed to look at it. Well, right. I mean, we right? do live in a yeah, like you know, in our society, it's kind of like you know, you get serious side eye if you have any kind of yeah, you know, so it's gone any of the stuff, or or even entertain right. the idea of it being possible, you know, right? And so, um, so yeah, like. I mean, I think it's some type of hominid that, you know, whether it's on the same level of intelligence as us or close or some type of like counterpoint or counterpart to, you know, the sort of homo sapien, like, I don't know, but there is, I I think it is some type of, you know, uh, quote, man, right? Like some type of homo something some type of hominid that is has a um some type of parallel intelligence right that like has a language um and and maybe is something lives a life maybe something close to um what early humans lived like and for whatever reasons they've not wanted to progress or haven't progressed or whatever spark that created the evolutionary branch that brought you know homo sapiens to the level of civilization they had you know uh according to terence mckinnon was psilocybin mushroom you know like whatever that spark was or fire or whatever that they didn't follow that road and i really just don't think it's that crazy to believe that you know there's there's another intelligent species out there you know, I just don't, I, it doesn't really stretch the imagination much for me. You know, mm-hmm. I think the questions are like, why is it, well, the questions that I find more interesting is it, why is it so hard for us to believe, right? With all the other scientific discoveries that would certainly be even weirder than this, right? Like there's ones out there that are weirder than this, right? Like all the like crazy creatures they, they find living around these like hot vents, uh, you know, d- down at the bottom of the ocean that they're like, this is impossible. Or, or you know, water bears that can like live in space, you know, the little microorganisms that can live in a complete vacuum. Or like those way luminescent weirder. fish that are kind of see-through with yeah, a big snaggle tooth. Then like kind of like mm-hmm. a monkey type of primate that lives in the for- <laughs> what? Why is that so fucking hard to believe? I think that's the question is more back on us. Like, what is it? Is there a metaphor here, right? Like we've so lost touch with the wild man, the wild being, the wild woman in ourselves that that the thought that they exist out there is somehow repugnant, right? Mm. It somehow strikes at the core of 
something we don't want to deal with on a psychological level or on a spiritual level. Right. And I think there's and also I, this arrogance and entitlement where you think we're the, we want to believe we're the center we of the universe, you know? I mean, like, we don't want to share. Whether it's a religious or, or scientific point of view, right? Like, you we're know, the like, smartest. We're, we're the, the yeah. smartest. We're the bestest. We're the highest form of intelligence in the universe, especially on this planet, right? And mm-hmm. And then I think there is something to the notion that, you know, having another intelligence out there something that maybe the the environment should be protected for i mean fuck that like our government's not going to acknowledge that it doesn't even do that with the with all the citizens of this country right surely they're not going to do that with they're not going to add to that list right so i think there is reason why uh, um you know the sort of powers that be would not want something like that to come out so you know, like I said, I definitely did not go into this <laughs> thinking there would be like conspiracy theory or government cover-up stories, but apparently there are ones, right? And so I think there's something to it. Maybe that is why, you know, there's a lot of foot dragging or like there's a lot of, there's an attitude towards, um, you know, big uh, Bigfoot, the, the, the possible scientific uh, um, examination of a wild man species um, is is just as tainted as the study of UFOs, even though year as the years go on, the Navy comes out and is like, yeah, we know there's UFOs. Like, here's the videos. <laughs> like, <or whatever. laughs> like, it's like gotten to that point. I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, no one's going to believe it. Like, it's yet another story, I think, that whatever your worldview is, it's confirmation of that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, if your worldview can encompass... Uh, extraterrestrials, then you believe in them. If it doesn't, it, do- it doesn't matter. Even if they flew down and fucking were like, hey, what's up? You might still late years later be like, uh, did that really happen? Do you know what I mean? Because everything around us reinforces the idea that it doesn't. So right. even the people that see them, they're like, you know, some people totally change their mind. They're like, I saw it. I know it to be true for myself, but there's no convincing even if you showed someone the body these days, I feel like it'd be like, yeah, that was like, you know, QAnon made it or something. <laughs> like there's some, yeah. There'd be some way to disregard it. So, you know, but I hope that there's some sort of, I mean, on the one hand, I almost hope that they stay hidden, right? Because yeah. we would probably destroy them. But at the same time, their environment is being encroached upon and I think that in the years to come, that may come to a head, you know, and, you know, it probably wouldn't do well for them. But maybe acknowledging them as a species would be the beginning of protecting some of their environment. So, well, cool, dude. I think we did it. How do we you feel? We did it. I feel pretty <laughs> yeah, good. One foot. year. One year. Shadowland anniversary, a shadowversary. The shadowversary. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And, and so we, we just got want some to say more. thank you. Though. Yeah, thanks, I want to say thanks thank for everyone listening. Thank you to and, everyone know, who's, who's listening, who's enjoying it. Please, if you if you like the show, leave us a rating or a review. Yep, or both. Yeah, yep. Both, be awesome. Thank definitely. You so let's much. help helps helps us helps people find our podcast, and so um, here. And also, uh, about, check out our new website too. Yeah, We've got a website, website where you can like learn more about episodes we're gonna you know we'll post links to things like you're gonna yeah, you know, yeah, like you'll audio, put up the audio like stuff like yep. that and then it's a way to get in touch and send us your stories and if you, yep. there are things that you want to 
you know, you want to hear us do, or you have a cool story. Um, we, we want to eventually do listener episodes. Be awesome. Yep. We'd love to hear from you. Totally. All right, cool. All right. Well, um, I guess we did it. We did it. Pretty good. Right. Yep. Pretty good. Okay. One so one year. Bigfoot. <laughs> Bigfoot. Um, okay. So I guess until next time. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Shadowland Podcast is produced by Seth Javlon and Christina Callard. Edited by Tim Kelly. Theme music by Tim Lincoln. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> <laughs>